Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. And they are here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Have you had a leaky roof? We did, and it was a nightmare. But through Angie, we found an amazing roofer who specialized in flat roofs, and he fixed it right and quickly. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com, that's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The app and website are both free to use. That's Angie.com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The summer is coming to an end and we're all getting back to business. And this fall, if your company is going to invest in just one new technology, make sure it's a new phone system. Phone.com, the same people who invented VOIP phone service, delivers the most comprehensive suite of features including talk, text, fax, audio, and video conferencing, and more at the lowest price. With Phone.com, your team can be accessible on any device from anywhere, anytime. Phone.com has advanced call screening features so you can screen calls based on caller ID or time of call, and you can even block pesky robocalls. Phone.com even has 24-7, 365-day U.S.-based support. Phone.com's service is fully scalable for growing businesses. Your company can sound and look larger and feel bigger and more professional. Phone.com's service is so advanced and reliable that we at the Tom Hartman program decided to move our service to them. For a limited time, you can go to phone.com and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive 20% off any monthly plan. It's so easy to remember. Go to phone.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. Rashida Tlaib says she's not going to visit the West Bank under uh, Israel's conditions. Israel, by the way, is saying that Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, is still not welcome to come to their country because of something she said. I heard a guy on uh, NPR defending this, saying, well, we have laws to prevent communists from coming into our country, you know, people who advocate the, the uh, overthrow of our country and stuff like that. And he was saying that the BDS movement was advocating the overthrow of Israel or the destruction of Israel. I don't see it that way. Again, I'm not an advocate of the BDS movement, but it seems to me that they're trying to change Israel's behavior, not eliminate it as a country. And... You know, Tom Friedman this morning, the New York Times, is saying anybody who thinks that Trump helped Israel with this is a fool. I mean, you know, this is just highlighting the BDS movement 
And now it's it's on the news. It was on NPR this morning. It's on CNN right now. In fact, at this moment, I've got it going in the studio here. I'm assuming it's on MSNBC. It's all over the place. This is not, you know, Trump does things that he thinks are going to help Trump. And they're just like insanely destructive. And this is this is what he's doing. So anyhow, our two Muslim members of Congress were told by Israel, or actually by Netanyahu, we should clarify, Benjamin Netanyahu, the right wing indicted alleged criminal who is the prime minister of Israel, is like the twin of the alleged criminal who is the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And you know, who wanted to have a Muslim ban, and, and now Netanyahu is saying, okay, we'll, we'll keep these two Muslims out of, out of Israel. So anyhow, they backed off on Tlaib, because her grandmother is 90 years old and lives in the West Bank. And so they said, okay, well, you know, we'll let her in for humanitarian purposes. All right. So Tlaib said, uh, visiting my, she tweeted this, visiting my grandmother under these oppressive conditions stands against everything I believe in. Silencing me and treating me like a criminal is not what my grandmother wants for me. It would kill a piece of me. So there you go. The federal appeals court yesterday ruled that the Trump administration, when they put children in cages, must feed them. Honest to God. And must provide them with water and toothbrushes and toothpaste and sleeping mats. The Trump administration actually went to court to argue that appropriate levels of food and water and toothbrushes and sleeping mats were not necessary. This is nuts. In Georgia, the U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg issued a preliminary injunction preventing Georgia election officials from using the state's current no-paper voting machines. There's no paper, there's no receipt, there's no nothing. They're totally electronic. You have no idea when you vote in, in Georgia whether your vote was actually recorded, whether it was recorded correctly. Nothing. And they're trying to replace these machines now with a new machine from a company that uh, has Republican ties that instead of producing a printed ballot produces a barcode. So you still don't know, right? It's still a black box. And, you know, why is it that, you know, Brian Kemp, the guy who, who threw hundreds of thousands of people off the voting rolls uh, just before he ran against Stacey Abrams and then won the, won the vote by fewer people than he threw off the voting rolls, the illegitimate governor of Georgia, why is it that he doesn't want to have secure voting in Georgia? I think the question answers itself. Real wages fell in July. Real hourly wages declined for all workers. Consumer costs rose in July. Healthcare, for example, went up a half a percent after going up three tenths of a percent the previous month. Uh, the healthcare industry, one of the most profitable in the world, a trillion dollar industry, screwing us all constantly. Manufacturing output declined in July for the fifth time in, seven, in the first seven months of the year. The deficit for 2019, this is August, has already reached the point that it was last year at the end of the year. Trump is running up a deficit like nobody's business. Of course, this will help when a Democrat becomes president and all the Republicans and all the media start screaming that it's now it's the time. You know, we've got to cut Social Security and Medicare because we can't afford it anymore. So, you know, get ready. Foreign companies are investing less. Thousands more workers were laid off. Lowe's, for example, laid off a bunch of people after spending billions of dollars buying back their own stock. They didn't even bother to pay severance. They didn't even bother to notify people. Just basically said, okay, you got two weeks, you're gone. People had worked there for decades, full time.
Wow, what a day, huh? Morris in Long Beach. Hey, Morris. Cesar Chavez? Thanks for listening to KPFK, by the way. Oh, you're welcome, sir. Thank you. Uh, Do you remember when uh, Cesar Chavez led a a boycott of grapes in California? I remember it well. Okay, all right. Now, when we we criminalize people with respect to the BDS for boycotting goods or services, that's what's criminal. And we should also remember this now. Well, hang on just a second, Morris. We don't criminalize them. Actually, Congress has tried to pass a resolution, a law about that, haven't they? I'd have to, I I need to dig into that. But anyhow, back to you, Morris, I'm sorry. It's Israel that criminalized it. They have tried demonizing those who uh, support the BDS. But we should remember one thing, okay? Palestine, Professor, is being occupied. That's a narrative that's never brought out there. They've got this thing framed all wrong. Palestine is being occupied. And if people listen to Middle East in Focus, which comes on KPFK on Sundays, they'd have a better understanding of, of what's going on over there. Yeah. And if they read anything by Max Blumenthal or Noam Chomsky, they'd have a better understanding of what's yeah. going on I mean, over Max, there. And Max wrote an extraordinary book about all this, yeah. Uh, what gets my goat is, you know, we know how we operate over here, freedom of speech, freedom of dissent, you know, stuff like that. But these folks are coming over here with these, you know, something in support of the Palestinians. You get put out. I mean, that's not America. You get put out your dorms. Uh, you know, that's just not us. And we got to be careful of the influence that they have on us. And remember this, America. El Nakba was to the Palestinian what the Holocaust was to my Jewish brothers and sisters, in my opinion, God's people. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you, uh, Morris. Jim in Lockport, Illinois. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? Tom, it's been a long time since I talked to you, but I, I feel this is really important. Uh, and this has to do with the uh, last debate. Sure. Because it was something that Bernie missed. As a matter of fact, Liz Warren. And this had to do with the attacks on uh, employer-based health care. And one of the things when uh, Ryan and uh, Bennett and, uh, and Bullock went after him on the employer-based health care, and he said, well, they're going to lose that. Bernie should have came right out and said, absolutely, they're going to lose it. But they're not losing their health care. What they're losing is their actual contributions into the health care. Now, I had talked to a guy that delivers water here. All right? Now, I asked him, I said, now, I'm on uh, disability, so uh, I really don't know what. But anyway, I asked him the big question was, how much do you pay to your health care every week? Mm -hmm. And he said $300 every two weeks. $7,400 $7,400 a year. Right. And when you get down to the bear soups and nuts, that's a sizable raise on somebody's income. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And if Not we went to, to Medicare that, for all, he would probably be paying in taxes less than half of that. Oh, you betcha, Tom. Easily. Easily. Uh, not to mention that you're able to go to any doctor possible because right. they're being paid by the government. Right. Uh, but to me, these issues, are, uh, this was an issue that was totally missed. And we need Bernie to rebut that and go after them hard and, and, and really hard on that because they're actually going to gain money. And it's also good for the employer and small business. Yeah, I'm with you. Because small businesses won't have to struggle trying to pay. No, you're care. right. And it's also going to do away with things like workman's, workman's compensation and other. I mean, there's a bunch of other insurances it'll eliminate the need for. Thanks, Jim.
It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter 1. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter, so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. 
She had ambition. She had vision. But she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one 888 gold You're listening to Tom Hartman. Next is going to be Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls. And Congressman Khanna, welcome back to the program. Tom, thanks for having me on again. And I should add uh, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is your website. And you can be tweeted at Rep Ro Khanna, R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A. And you represent the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley, essentially. First of all, just to start out, anything that you wanted to riff about at all, you know, what's going on in the world, what's going on in Congress, or do you want to just jump right in and pick up calls? We've already got some calls stacked up for you. Well, I would just say two quick things. I mean, first of all, it's absolutely outrageous that Israel has denied entry to Representative Tlaib and Representative Omar. I've been saying it's not just an insult to them, it's an insult to the American people. How can you deny access to a member of Congress in light of the fact that we give billions of dollars of aid to these countries and that they, members of Congress, have a legitimate reason to be there to conduct oversight over uh, what's happening with the aid? 
Uh, the second thing, which I know, Tom, we've spoken about briefly offline, is the raids that took place in these places against immigrants. No one is talking about why they are going after vulnerable immigrant populations and not after the employers for hiring them. And we ought to be talking about the consequences for the employers who are breaking willfully immigration law. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that. So let's just jump into our phone calls, okay? Sounds great. Okay, Joe in Cupertino, California, presumably one of your constituents. Joe, you're on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. Tom, thank you again for allowing me to speak to the congressman. Just real quick, yesterday you had a call from a gentleman from South Asia. It was very difficult to understand. He was trying to articulate the situation in the Kashmir region. I was wondering if Congressman Connor, who has very personal information about that, could explain to me better because I'm very confused. I think that there is potential for a conflict in this part of the world, and I don't think that this country should really be involved because we don't really have any moral standing in the world anymore, but that's just my personal opinion. Okay. I'll take your answer off the air. Thank you. Thank you. Well, India and Pakistan have been in two wars over Kashmir, and uh, there's concern of escalating rhetoric in the subcontinent, and I think the role of the United States should play is to continue to call for dialogue and ratcheting down the rhetoric and peace. But I'm not convinced that having Trump mediate is going to do anything. In fact, I think that may have precipitated the crisis when he said that the Indian prime minister had asked him to mediate and then the Indian prime minister denied that. I think that led to a, a cascade of events. So my sense is that what we should say is that the party should sit down and try to resolve this and stop the ratcheting of rhetoric. My understanding that the, this fellow who called in yesterday said, no, you've got it wrong, was that Kashmir, as a consequence of this history, Kashmir had been running as more or less a semi-autonomous region with its own internal systems of governance with kind of oversight from India, I suppose you could say, and that India has cut them off from the world. They've cut off their internet, they've cut off their phone service, they have diminished Kashmir's ability to govern themselves. Now, he said I'm wrong about that, and I may well be. I do not know very much about that region. What, what is actually happening there right now? Well, I would want to get the facts, too. I think that my understanding is that there's part of Kashmir that's in Indian territory, and then there's part of Kashmir that's in Pakistan territory, that the part that is in Indian territory, India uh, has exerted uh, control over, and originally it recalled for a plebiscite, but India had amended the Constitution to allow for the governor to be able to say that they want to join the rest of the state. And so I think there's a constitutional debate within India about whether they have that power or not. Of course, the parliament voted overwhelmingly that they did, and now it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Everyone hopes and wants that they respect the human rights of people in Kashmir, even if they believe that the process is legitimate. But I don't think that it was semi-autonomous. I mean, mm -hmm. that has never been my understanding, though I, I will say I'm not an expert on the region. Yeah, well, I, I know less, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in India, but I've never been to Kashmir. And thank you. Jim in Los Angeles, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. Can Congress pass a bill to allow all congressmen immediate access to all private prisons? Go in with cameras, doctors, and DAs, charge ICE with kidnapping kidnapping, negligent homicide, and torture. Taking children from their parents is torture for both parents and children. 
Jim, I agree with you completely. I mean, I've called for the abolishment of private prisons. I don't understand why we want to have corporate-run prisons when prisons serve a public function, have a rehabilitative function, have to uphold human rights. It's wrong to outsource that to private prisons. So I believe that they, they need to be abolished both in the criminal justice system and we ought not to have private detention facilities in immigration. I mean, these should be government public functions with government accountability. Short of that, though, I absolutely would support legislation to allow inspection by members of Congress or other agencies to make sure that they're at least upholding some basic standards. Terry in Newburgh, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Congressman Khanna, Congress had voted to censure Wilbur Roth and William Barr, I guess, with criminal contempt. And I'm wondering, are these two hideous individuals ever going to face any consequence for that vote? Well, Terry, I am on the Oversight Committee. We voted to censor them, and then they have been referred to the House Committee. I should get you the facts if I want to be accurate whether the House has actually had that vote yet on the criminal contempt or not. I am not sure if we voted at the House level. I know we did on the Oversight Committee. But once we do vote at the House level, and we may have, I'll get get those facts to you if you call our office, uh, the challenge is then the enforceability. And a lot of times what happens in the past, in the few instances where someone has been held in contempt, that goes, it's a black mark on their record that stays with them for life, but there isn't necessarily uh, something that puts them in jail. Now, most people don't want to be held in contempt of Congress. They want, it hurts them in getting a future job. It hurts them in their reputation, but these individuals are shameless. They don't care. So I suppose the Speaker could technically arrest someone for contempt of Congress. You could send the Sergeant of Arms, but that's never happened. Janet in Mount Vernon, Washington. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you for taking my call, Tom. Congressman Khanna, first of all, you are one of my heroes. I say Ro Khanna for Speaker. But my question for you is, right now, you know, I think that all of these diversions denying Ilhan Omar and the other congresswoman access to Israel, it's like it's just reality TV. It's what he does. Meanwhile, we've got this despicable person named William Perry Penley, who's going to become the head of the Bureau of Land Management. This is a man, it's like putting an arsonist in charge of the fire station. He hates public lands. And, you know, what? what is Congress doing to keep, and, and they're going around, they're going to put him in as the assistant, because they know he is so despicable. He hates public lands. He's, he's worse than James Watts back in the Reagan days. Uh, you know, what can we do? These, our public lands are, the billionaires are literally picking this country apart. And I feel like that there should be a you know, bumper sticker that says, you know, it's a Koch brothers stupid, because they want access to all of these natural resources. And our public lands and our public parks are one of our, our greatest treasures in this country. What can Congress do? What are you doing to keep an eye on this? Jen, I uh, appreciate very much the kind words, and I completely agree with you that the real stories, the uncovered stories, are what's taking place in the agencies, whether it is the person you reference and public land management and the giving away of public lands, or whether it's the Interior Department's recent policy where they said that 
the Endangered Species Act no longer would be protecting, based on their interpretation, certain endangered species, but would be facilitating extraction of resources from the ground. I mean, they literally have a rule that is going to facilitate uh, resource extraction as opposed to the mandate of the statute, which is protecting species. And you're pointing out that they've appointed someone who's going to uh, be selling off public lands. They, at the EPA, literally, uh, uh, this was a couple of years ago, I don't know if the person's still there, appointed someone to the EPA who had done a paper saying that the air was too clean and that it was hurting American kids and developing immunity. A friend of mine tweeted out, where do they find these people? So the president is engaged in a politics of distraction, of uh, uh, ginning up uh, anger based on race, based on divisions on immigration. Uh, Meanwhile, he has appointed people in these agencies who are doing systematic damage to our environment, to health standards, to labor standards, to our economy for workers. And I agree with you that that needs a lot more coverage. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us taking your calls here on the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Khanna represents the 17th District of uh, California. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. Uh, He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus also. And uh, you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. We'll be right back with more of your calls from Congressman Khanna. So it's Friday, and if the week has caught up with you the way it has with me, and the aches and pains and, oh, geez, yeah, sitting in the chair at work all day or or out, you know, doing physical stuff, uh, great time to use CBD oil, you know, to reduce the inflammation and and relieve the pain. CBD oil is non-intoxicating. It's ideal for people who want to use cannabinoids without getting high. It's uh, non-toxic. It's potent. And the best brand that I've found, Louise and I have found, is New Leaf Naturals. CBD oil, nuleafnaturals.com is their website. Nuleafnaturals is the company. And it's the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown right here in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp. So it's legal and it's pure and simple. It works. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. That's nuleafnaturals.com. Save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. Leslie in Central Square, New York. Hey, Leslie, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hi, Congressman. My name is Austin. I have to talk about something very, very important to all of us. And that's, that's the fact that uh, the Americans have been being brainwashed for 30 years by Fox News and Limbo and all them. There's only one way to stop it, and that's uh, the fairness doctrine. It has to be put back in. None of the Democrats bring it up because they're taking corporate money. Would you please address this? Thank you. Well, thank you, Austin. I completely agree with you on the fairness doctrine. I mean, people are complaining about social media, and social media certainly has its problems in terms of inciting violence or having bias. But one of the big problems is cable news. And Grenko at Stanford did a study that showed that the greatest polarization and misinformation in the 2016 election was by cable news. Uh, there ought to be a fairness doctrine, which simply requires a uh, news channel uh, that 
gets spectrum from the United States government, that gets our tax dollars subsidizing their spectrum to air alternative perspectives or fair perspectives. So I completely support that. Yeah. Just uh, FYI, the old fairness doctrine only said two things. They, number one, that in order to renew your license every year, and I started in broadcasting in 1968. I'm, <laughs> I was a DJ for three years. I did news for seven years back in Michigan in the 60s and 70s, and I'm real familiar with this. The fairness doctrine, number one, said that you must program in the public interest. That was the phrase. And what that was interpreted to mean was not the public service announcements. It was that there was news at the top of every hour and that that news was free of bias and what it was actual news. And that's why all the networks lost money on their news divisions because they had to actually provide real news. And within six months of Reagan repealing the Fairness Doctrine in 87, CBS had moved their news division under their vice president of programming. And uh, the other two networks followed within the year. So that kind of blew that up. And then the second part of the Fairness Doctrine was that when a station... And this was a common thing. that I worked at a TV station in Lansing, Michigan, that three times a week, the owner of the station would come on and he would read a little editorial and take a position, typically a political position. And because he was representing the station, he was the owner of the station, there had to be an equal amount of time. He would do three minutes and then we would have a local politician on who disagreed with him who would do his three, three minutes as a rebuttal. But if it wasn't the owner or management of the station expressing an opinion, the station could have run right-wing talk radio all day long or they could have run left-wing talk radio all day long. The Fairness Doctrine never required balance in programming. And personally, I think that's a good thing because I'm not sure I want the government being an arbiter of whether I'm right-wing, left-wing or what. Wendy in Parkland, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Congressman. Um, there was a call a little while back where the woman asked you about the, all of the agencies and the people being appointed who are, their goal is to destroy the agencies and everything that they stand for. And with all due respect, I don't think you answered her question as to what Congress can actually do about these appointments. Most of them are acting. They're not actually confirmed. The ones that are confirmed... Their goal is still to destroy the agencies that they're appointed to. So I'd like to know what, if there is anything that Congress can do other than your answer was to get more coverage. But I don't think that that's the answer that she was looking for. It's not the answer that I'm looking for. Well, I appreciate that, Wendy. Wendy, there's very little Congress can do to a, in an executive branch position that is not confirmed by the Senate. We, ha we can exercise oversight. So when there is an executive branch that is clearly violating the law, we can try to expose that and refer that as a criminal matter or refer that to an inspector general or expose it to the public. We could, I suppose, cut off funding. But in many of these cases, the places you would be cutting off funding are actually the productive parts of the government. So if you wanted to cut off funding to the Interior Department because they are limiting the scope of the Endangered Species Act interpretation, you would actually be hurting any enforcement of the Endangered Species Act. So blanket cutting off of funding is also not possible when you have an administration that is intent on appointing a appointees who are going to deregulate or reduce regulation, you could go to the courts, which a number of folks have been going, but the courts in the past have been fairly deferential to administrative oversight. So 
I'm not trying to avoid your question other than to say this is why elections matter so much and why it matters who the president of the United States is, and they get to appoint people who have relatively wide latitude in the interpretation of agencies. But we in Congress are doing everything we can, both with oversight and with conditioning funding uh, where we can to prevent these abuses. Otis in Yorktown, Virginia. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh, appreciate it. I'm going to try to make this as quick as I can. He asked the question about why would the owners not be arrested during the Mississippi thing. $3 million lawsuit when people tried to unionize. I'm going to make the prediction in 12 to 18 months the poultry industry will try to do the same thing Smithfield Packing did several years ago. They're going to be lobbying Congress to figure out a way to have that processing done offshore and then shipping food back to us. Those owners use ICE to disrupt a labor dispute that they were losing in. Is that what was going You're saying right now? Fascinating. Otis? Yes, yes, I am, because they lost a $3 million suit and then turned around after the other people showed up to work after the ICE suite. They fired another 100 workers. Now, I'm saying to you, corporate industry does nothing without looking forward, and in 12 to 18 months, they'll be lobbying countries. This, this Congress or the next to try to figure out how to do offshoring and eliminate these jobs domestically completely. Hmm. Congressman, sorry I jumped oh, in there. That is fascinating. That's the first I've heard of that, and I'm going to look into it. But uh, you're actually right to say that these employers have total impunity. They're the ones who have helped wanted signs at our border. They're the ones who are recruiting folks knowingly, and then they suffer no consequence. And then you're adding an other layer to it that perhaps they are the ones who are going after the undocumented population if the undocumented population is engaged in union organizing or engaged in advocating for their rights. It is totally appalling to me. It already was appalling to me that you had ICE going in there and raiding employees, uh, parents with kids, and not doing anything to the employers. And if we now find out that it's actually involved labor violations that the employer was committing, that's just outrageous. So I'm going to try to get more facts on what you said, and I appreciate your raising it. Mick in Santa Cruz, California. You're on the air with Congressman Conant. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I'm calling about the uh, number of people I view homeless or houseless throughout the uh, West Coast. And in your district particularly, what I see is the disparity due to the uh, financial uh, distribution. Also, I see, as a result of that, I see more people being homeless because of uh, the high cost of rents. My question is, what is your approach to getting more homes for the homeless up and down the West Coast? Thank you. Well, Nick, I appreciate it. I do think uh, the homelessness is a particular problem in Los Angeles and San Francisco, most acute, and then it has increased even in Silicon Valley. About 45% of the homeless in our area are because of mental health issues or disabilities, but there's about a 30% or so who are there because they have lost their job. Now, California doesn't have New York's law. New York has a law which says that you have a right to basic shelter. I think that would be good for the state to adopt, so you at least have the right to shelter. But I believe in the home-first policy, which is 
statistically shown that you have to put people in a home and help them get to complete services to get back on their feet. And we need more investments in affordable homes in the, in the region and more construction of affordable homes and more investment in the wraparound services that, the, that homeless need. So these are two needs that the, the region has. Congressman, we have only about 50 seconds. So I'm wondering what you think we should be paying attention to is in the next you know, week or two until the next time you're on the program. Where should we be focusing our activism and, and what should we be watching? Well, Tom, I think we need to be looking at this impeachment inquiry that Nadler is going to start and see what is going to be coming of that. We need to be continuing to demand action on gun violence. I mean, after El Paso and Dayton, the House has passed two of these background check bills and passed legislation to limit magazine capacity. We need now the Senate to act and we need the House to act even in more bold ways once we're back. And you're anticipating that happening? I do, and certainly from the House's perspective, I do, but we got to put pressure on the Senate as well. That's great. Congressman Rokana, thank you so much for being with us this hour. Thank you. Great talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. First, Senator Bernie Sanders dropped by. Hey, Senator, welcome back to the program. Hey, good to be with you, Tom. The latest news thing that flew by me that had your name attached to it, not from you, but, you know, in the news was your uh, talking back to Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm curious your thoughts on that. And also, what else is going on in the world today that you would well, like to comment on? There are one or two minor things going on in the world today, I think. But yeah. uh, in terms of Netanyahu and the, you know, Rashida in Ilan, members of the United States Congress, it just seems to me to be absurd that Israel and Netanyahu thinks that they can deny a United States congressperson the right to visit their country. I have been to Israel numerous times. I've been all over the world. And members of Congress are welcome and invited into those countries to learn about what's going on, to speak to the leaders and so forth. And the idea that two members of the United States Congress, maybe because of their religion, their Muslim, maybe because of their political views, they're progressive, they are denied access to Israel is unacceptable. And what I said yesterday, and I repeat, the United States provides billions and billions of dollars in aid to Israel. And if Israel does not think that members of the United States Congress should be able to visit their country, maybe they want to politely refuse to accept any more money from this country. So that's the bottom line. And uh, I think what Netanyahu is doing, what Trump has done on this issue, is racist, is outrageous, it is unacceptable, and it's one more reason why we have to make sure that Trump is not reelected to the presidency. Yeah, I'm with you there. Well, what else is on your radar screen these days? Well, there's a lot that's on. I mean, we've been running all over the country. And I'll tell you something that I'm feeling very good about. I think the message of Medicare for All is resonating very strongly all across America. And it's not just all of the polling that I've been seeing, which has a majority of the American people, when they understand the issue, now support Medicare for All. But I think it has everything to do with the incredible dysfunctionality an incredible waste of the current health care system. It is very hard for our opponents to defend the system in which we are spending, Tom, and this is an important point not made often enough, we are spending twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other industrialized nation. We're spending almost $11,000 a year. And for that, what we end up with is some 87 million Americans are underinsured or uninsured completely, we have 30,000 people every year die because they don't get to a doctor when they should. 
unbelievably, this is really quite unbelievable on top of all that, you got 500,000 people go bankrupt in America because they cannot pay off their incredible medical bills that they have for a serious illness. So you take a step back and you think, how does it happen that families get ruined financially for what crime did they commit? And the crime they committed, I guess, is somebody in the family got cancer or heart disease or some other terrible illness. That's insane. So I think people catch on to the fact that a Medicare for All program, the legislation I've introduced in the Senate, would guarantee health care to all people with no deductibles, no co-payments, no out-of-pocket expenses. We'd expand benefits to include uh, dental care, hearing aids, eyeglasses. And at the end of the day, after a four-year phase-in, it will cost substantially less per person for health care as we are now paying. Because right now, we're going forward with premiums and out-of-pocket expenses and co-payments. And we're paying for it in some ways with people dying because they can't get to a hospital when they need. So I'm very excited about the kind of progress that we're making on Medicare for All. That's good news. It is. And the other part of that equation is we are seeing more and more consciousness about the greed and illegal behavior of the pharmaceutical industry, where you have a handful of corporations in many cases, in insulin, for example, controlling the price of a product and charging us 10 times more than our Canadian neighbors are paying. One of the things that Medicare for All will do is cap the amount of money that we spend for prescription drugs at $200 per person, and we do that by substantially lowering the cost of prescription drugs in this country, by having Medicare negotiate uh, prices with the drug companies and looking what other countries are paying. So we are going to be taking on the insurance companies. We're going to move to Medicare for all. We're going to take on the pharmaceutical industry. We're going to cut their prices very substantially. You know, and uh, I think we're making some progress in that area. Now, during the Bush administration, you know, when they passed this Medicare Part D thing with Billy Towson, you know, promoting it, I know Mm -hmm. you were speaking out loudly on this program, actually, about this. The law says that Medicare, which is arguably the largest purchaser of pharmaceuticals in the United States, may not negotiate prices. They have to pay full retail. So if that... Tom, Tom, remind the audience, just in case some of them may have forgotten, who Billy Towson was, who was then a congressman from Louisiana. Right. Yeah, he was a congressman. And what did he do? Let me shock the people to tell what happened to Billy Towson after he left the Congress. Yeah, he got a job for, I think, $2 million a year as the head of pharma, the big lobbying group for the pharmaceutical industry. Aren't we shocked by that? Yeah. Well, not only that, he he got a waiver from the the Republican Speaker of the House, I forget who it was at the time, um, or which one it was, um, so that he could leave Congress a few months early to take this job. Right. I mean, that's the corruption that you're dealing with in the Congress right now. Here's a guy who writes the drug bill, says that Medicare cannot negotiate prices. The result is the prices are far higher in the United States than any other country on Earth. It's shock of all shocks. A little while later, he leaves Congress to go to work for the pharmaceutical uh, industry. And over the years, he made a whole lot of money working for that industry. But that's, that's what we're up against uh, right now. Yeah. You know, and what the point of, of the campaign that we're running is to tell the American people that we are not going to do the things that most Americans want, and that is move to Medicare for all, lower the cost of prescription drugs, break up the large banks on Wall Street, take on the fossil fuel industry, unless we have what amounts to a political revolution where millions of people uh, understand that we've got to stand up and fight back, or else 
you continue to see the, the kinds of reality, uh, the, the same as, as went on with Billy Tolson, and that is, you know, the companies determine what happens rather than uh, ordinary people. Yeah. One of the other big issues that a lot of people are talking about is climate change. This is particularly a, a yep. concern for, for younger people, although I would say, you know, even us old farts, we have children and grandchildren, and we Absolutely. should be concerned about the fate and future of, of the world and the human race. Where is Congress at on doing anything about climate change? Obviously, you know, well, Trump is nuts on this, but uh, what are your thoughts? Right. What you have, and it's the same stories, the same as issue, the gun safety issues, talking about the cyber hacking into uh, American elections and the need to protect us from you know, Russian intervention or anybody else. On all of these issues, you have a Republican. Does the Democratic Party do enough? No. Does the Republican Party do anything? Absolutely not. So here is the issue of climate change. The leading scientists all over the world, all over the world, have told us that not only is climate change real, but it is already causing devastating problems. And they have told us, if we don't get our act together in the next 11 or 12 years, a very short period of time, that there will be irreparable, underlying irreparable damage done in our country and around the world. We are talking about the future of the planet we call Earth, our home. And yet we have a president who doesn't acknowledge the reality of climate change, You've got leadership in the United States Senate, Mitch McConnell and others, who have refused to bring up any serious legislation dealing with climate change, and they are threatening the entire planet. At the end of the day, what we have got to do is to understand that climate change, of course, is not just an American issue. It's a global issue. We need leadership in the White House, which will go out to the rest of the world and say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, instead of spending a trillion and a half dollars every year on weapons of destruction designed to kill each other, maybe we want to spend those resources and more in taking on our common enemy, which is climate change. And maybe, just maybe, we can create throughout the world tens and tens of millions of dollars transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel. There you go. Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. It's always great having you. Okay, you too, Tom. Thank you very much. You know, when you're sleeping, your body is actually repairing itself. This is the time uh, in the 24-hour cycle, you know, our, our day, every day, this is the time when our body does its housekeeping. It's when the brain literally cleans out, um, you know, debris and you know, metabolic waste is the is the scientific term, I think. And uh, and not just the brain, but, but it you know, it's the entire body, muscles, liver, everything. I mean, everything just kind of does its deep dive, its cleaning system. And that's really important to have good physical and mental function. And that requires good sleep. And if you want good sleep, you need the Pod by 8 Sleep. The Pod is a new, it's the ultimate sleep machine. It's the Tesla of mattresses. It is the first and only high-tech bed designed to help you achieve peak mind and body performance. And how do you do that? By having a good night's sleep. How do you get a good night's sleep? The Pod actually senses the temperature of your body and, you, and your sleep, you know, your sleep patterns throughout the night. And it adjusts its own temperature to match your temperature need so that you sleep deeper, you sleep better, you sleep longer, if that's your choice. Um, 
because the better you sleep, the better you everything. Try the pod for 100 nights. If you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup only at 8sleep.com slash Tom. They've already sold out their first two batches. They're going fast. A brand new product for a limited time. Get 150 bucks off when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Our book today is How Bernie Won, Inside the Revolution That's Taking Back Our Country and Where We Go From Here by Jeff Weaver. It's actually, most of the book is kind of Jeff Weaver's autobiography of his relationship with Bernie and the campaign. But this is the last chapter, which I thought was the most interesting part of the book. Talking about Bernie's historic 2016 race and the impact that he and his millions of supporters are having on politics would not be complete without some discussion of the 2020 race. The 2020 race will look very different from those in 2008 and 2016. The most visible difference will be the much larger field of candidates. Many of them will not be well known at the beginning and will have to work to establish themselves as viable choices. That is exactly the position that Bernie found himself in at the beginning of the 2016 campaign. It's critical that if the forces of progress are to win in 2020, each of these candidates must have a fair chance to introduce herself or himself to the Democratic rank and file in a process that is as fair as possible. We cannot lose sight of the fact that the number one job is defeating Donald Trump. On issue after issue, his administration has betrayed the people he asked for support. He promised to drain the swamp, but has filled his cabinet with Wall Street insiders. He promised better health care and then tried to add millions to the roles of the uninsured. He promised to favor the middle class over the elites, but pushed a tax agenda that would benefit the super rich and endanger funding for schools, health care and transportation. As of this writing, he couldn't even keep his promise to release the government's JFK assassination files, a decision derided by the Republican Senate Judiciary Chair and a federal judge. People all across this country rightly wanted change in 2016 and still do. However, this is not the change that working people thought they were getting when Trump sold them a false bill of goods in 2016. In addition, the Trump administration has demonstrated its incompetence at the most basic level of governing. For many of us, this has come as a mixed blessing. The President Trump's lack of competence has meant that agenda items like the repeal of the Affordable Care Act have failed, but no one can argue that it's good for our country to have an administration that at times looks more like the Keystone Cops than the leadership of the free world. There are more auspicious signs that we can, in fact, replace the most divisive pro-corporate elites and anti-working family president in modern American history in 2020. But that is not a given. President Trump still enjoys support in the Republican Party as a whole and in many regions of the country. He will have access to mountains of billionaire class dollars, and he will have the very powerful weapon of the bully pulpit of the presidency. There can be little doubt that the media will not have learned anything from 2016 and once again will give him billions of dollars in free airtime, far more than his opponents will get. The business imperative that drove the coverage of the empty podium has not gone away. Despite what the media believes, the moral indignation repeatedly expressed by commentators and TV hosts over Trump's behaviors and untruths does not compensate for the wall-to-wall -wall coverage he gets. Trump knows that better than anyone else and will use it to his advantage. What do we do in this historically important moment? What we cannot do is continue to do what we have been doing. That failed in 2016, and it has failed for nearly a decade now with consistent losses at the local, state, and federal level. Being not Trump is not going to cut it. Now is the time for Democrats to demonstrate what they are for, not just what they are against. 
That's been difficult for a number of reasons. All the serious contenders for the Democratic nomination in 2020 are rightly focused now on resisting the Trump agenda rather than promoting themselves as the alternative. The American people don't want to live in a world of perpetual political campaigns, though. That said, the run for the 2020 nomination has already begun. Everyone testing the waters will not ultimately be a candidate, but like a chess game, the pieces are moving. And in the early part of the game, the pawns get positioned first. Some are still relitigating the 2016 election. Some are doing so out of bitterness at the outcome, either because they thought they were going to win, they thought the election was stolen from them, or understandably to protect the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Her career in politics is itself historic in many ways, and her accomplishments are many. Her loss to Trump, in their eyes, mars that lifetime of hard-fought achievements. I don't agree, but I do understand it. Campaigns are fought in a historical moment that candidates have no control over. 2016 was a change election, as 2020 will be. Hillary Clinton was not viewed as the candidate who was going to make enough change by working class people of all races, by young people, and by independent voters to be elected easily to the presidency in 2016. At another historical moment, that might not have been true. That is not unique to her. In my view, Bill Clinton would not have been able to secure the Democratic nomination today. The grassroots of the Democratic Party has rejected neoliberalism. But except for the Clinton world insiders and some of her most strident supporters, the relitigation of 2016 increasingly has nothing to do with 2016 and everything to do with 2020. There are already highly organized online operations, reminiscent of the Brock trolling program discussed in Chapter 7, whose mission is to attack Bernie and his supporters. In truth, it never really stopped after the primaries. Too many at the top of our own party are scared to death of the regular people in every corner of the country that Bernie Sanders gave voice to in 2016 and continues to give voice to. Consistent polling shows Bernie as the most popular active political figure in America, which has those people in a panic. But what is below those top-line numbers is even more panic-inducing. Bernie Sanders is the most popular with voters of color. That flies in the face of what can only be called a lie of Trumpian proportions. The progressive change only appears to rabid white male hipster Bernie bros. It's not true now and never was. How Bernie won by Jeff Weaver. Jeanette in Spirit Lake, Idaho. Hey, Jeanette, what's up? One of the biggest problems that progressives have, and that's getting our message out. So we need to reach people all across the country because corporate media isn't really doing it. And, you know, the other day you mentioned Warren's plan, but Bernie also has a great eight-point plan to re revitalize, you know, rural America. Mm -hmm. And I think a great place to message that, you know, not just for the presidential campaign, but also if they can do it for the Progressive Caucus, are highway billboards. And so I wanted to ask if the caucus can do that. You know, can they buy billboards to you know, yeah. disseminate the message? And, and, and I also hope Bernie does that because... You know, big ag is a monopoly that rural America understands, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, to me, it's just like, how can we get people in a, you know, in a bullet point to understand what progressives are talking about and thinking? And if we can put these billboards that people see every day when they're driving down the highway, you know, up to help do that, I think that is a... A great idea. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know that the Progressive Caucus is ever engaged in advertising. Uh, you know, they don't have much of a budget. They don't do fundraising. They don't have access to the billionaires, right? You're seeing a grassroots movement right now in Kentucky, where people just all over the state are putting up these Moscow Mitch billboards and stuff like that. I agree with you, uh, Jeanette, that billboards are very, very powerful advertising vehicles, for, particularly for for politics. It's why uh, Fred Koch was, you know, running the impeach Earl Warren billboards all those years. Bill in Vero Beach, Florida. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind? 
Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm well. Um, What's up? Go Bernie. Hey, i, I got to ask you a question about the Democrats. Why aren't they more vociferously attacking Trump about everything? I mean, the whole group of Democrats. I think know, they're I, starting to. I wake to. up every morning with Trump despair. Yeah, I, I, you know? I think they're starting to, and, and we're starting to see that. And, and by the yeah, way, yeah, uh, apropos of your birdie comment, I just want to note one more time, we have invited every single Democratic candidate to come on this program whenever they want, at, relatively speaking, as frequently as they want. And the only one who has taken us up on that offer has been Bernie. I think the Democrats are moving in the, in the right direction. Do you think the Democrats have a plan in case the bubble does burst and there's a recession? You know, somebody... I'm listening about the inverse relationship. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Do they have a plan? Because there's nothing left. Yeah, they actually they actually do have a plan. And I think, you know, restoring America's manufacturing infrastructure is a good step. Democrats have been talking about this forever. You know, Sherrod Brown was one of the leaders on this, calling for tariffs and protectionist trade policies. You just the problem is you don't do it the way Donald Trump has done it. Donald Trump has done it stupid. If you impose tariffs by executive order, they last until you're not in office anymore. And any other country will go, oh, we'll just outlast, you know, President Trump. Or for that matter, you know, mess with the election and make sure he doesn't get reelected. You know, so instead, what you do is you pass it through Congress. You, you achieve a national consensus. This is how policy changes. So that needs to happen. Number one. Number two, we need to strengthen our financial system or our, our governmental system in large part by repealing the Trump tax cuts, the Bush tax cuts and the Reagan tax cuts. If we were to go back to the tax system that we had pre-Reagan, when the middle class was incredibly strong, when wealthy people, yes, they were getting, getting wealthy, but middle class and working class people and even poor people were getting wealthy uh, slightly faster than rich people were, although rich people were doing just fine, thank you very much. That would, uh, that would solve probably 60% of our problems. But, you know, that's going to take a solid Democratic majority. And particularly now that we learn that the Koch brothers have been funding the third way, you know, this, this Democratic think tank. It's like, oh, my God, we really need progressives in Congress. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. So find a local Democrat who, you know, is a good progressive and do everything you can to help them out or run for office yourself. Rich in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Rich, what's up? Out here in Denver, I have seen commercials, Tom, where the uh, the service unions and the trade unions and the IB, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and others, are advertising on TV and radio to recruit workers. Because I remember that was one of the topics when you were in the forum in Chicago. And as to Rokana and, and Bernie, love Bernie as well. You posed the question before. You've said it many times. The first party that starts bringing jobs back to America and union and manufacturing. And at one time, you know this time, union and manufacturing employed one-third of all Americans. Yep. We'll start winning the election. We had comprehensive immigration policy. Like, as he said, you said Reagan just kind of wink and nod and gave his corporate buddies. Cheap well, it was, it was actually that's, a deal, that's where it Rich. All started. No, it was actually a deal. And yeah. you go back and you look at the history of that time, and it's absolutely fascinating. The 86, in the 86 case, Republicans wanted to... Well, actually, both the Republicans and Democrats wanted to do something about people who were here without documentation who had been here for a long period of time. I think you had to be here at least five years. You had to prove you'd been here at least five years and a good citizen, basically, in order to, to qualify. But the Democrats wanted added to the law because prior to 86, it wasn't illegal for an employer to hire somebody who was here without documentation. So the Democrats wanted that added to the law. 
And they got that in the law in 1986. The Republicans said, okay, we'll go along with that if you'll let us legalize these people who you know, will expand the labor pool and drive down wages. And the Democrats were like, okay, in exchange for that, put in here strong provisions that employers who hire people who are not here without documentation can go to jail. And that's what passed. That was the Immigration Reform Act of 1986. And then Reagan proceeded to ignore the provision about employers. And every president since him has ignored that provision. Right. And that's right. the simple reality. And that's exactly like what you say very often. We don't have an, uh, an illegal uh, employee problem. We have an illegal employer problem. Right. We don't have an illegal immigration yeah. problem in this country. We have an illegal employer problem. Yeah. I think the Democrats are just starting to realize how they got played by Reagan. And, and that was damn near 40 years ago. <laughs> and, 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 but they got played. And, you know, anyway rather than uh, feeding the, the, the wackadoodles. But, you know, we'll see how it, how, it, how it all shakes out. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's not some, some random thing. And it's not, by the way, a natural law. It's, it requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 